no one person or no one organization is going to fix or change healthcare. So if you think that building a company and you alone are going to change the way healthcare is done, you're going to be very disappointed. So learn to play in a village. Welcome to MedSider Radio, where you can learn from proven medtech and healthcare thought leaders through uncut and unedited interviews. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. Hey everyone, it's Scott. In this episode of MedSider, I sat down with Dr. Misha Dogan, CEO and co-founder of Cardio Diagnostics. She's a well-respected leader in the epigenetic space, and after completing her PhD in biomedical engineering, she co-founded Cardio Diagnostics and co-invented its patent-pending cardiac technologies, which seek to improve the early detection, diagnosis, and prevention of heart disease through objective risk assessment testing. Here are a few of the key things that we discussed in this conversation. First, reverse engineering a solution to an existing need in healthcare isn't the only way to build a viable product. Another approach involves transforming compelling scientific breakthroughs into a marketable product designed to fulfill an unmet clinical need. Second, accessibility plays a vital role in determining the fluidity of your product's transition from lab to market. Getting your product into the hands of consumers is just as important as getting it in front of healthcare providers, organizations, employer groups, and other key stakeholders. Third, the best approach to raising capital might look different from one company to another. But whether your company chooses to go public or raise funds from angel investors and venture capitalists, onboarding the right people during the process can make all the difference in the world. Before we jump into this episode, I wanted to let you know that we recently released the second volume of MedSider Mentors, which summarizes the key learnings from the most popular MedSider interviews over the last six months or so. Look, it's tough to listen or read every single MedSider interview that comes out, even the best ones. But there are so many valuable lessons you can glean from the founders and CEOs that join our program. So that's why we decided to create MedSider Mentors. It's the easiest way for you to learn from the world's best medical device and health technology entrepreneurs in one central place. If you're interested in learning more, head over to medsiderradio.com forward slash mentors. Premium members get free access to all past and future volumes. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. In addition to every volume of MedSider Mentors, you'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Erica Rogers, CEO of Silk Road Medical, Dr. David Albert, founder of AliveCore, and so many others. In addition, as a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medtech and health tech entrepreneurs. Learn more by visiting medsiderradio.com forward slash mentors. Again, that's medsiderradio.com forward slash mentors. All right, Dr. Misha Dogan, thanks for uh, joining MedSider. Appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. All right. And you've got an impressive pedigree. And so for the for the sake of the conversation, I'll refer to you as as, as Misha. Is that, is that okay? That's perfect. All right. Sounds good. Well, I recorded um, kind of a brief bio at the outset of this uh, of this interview, but let's start there. Can you give us an, can, mm-hmm. an idea of kind of your, your educational and professional background leading up to uh, starting cardio diagnostics? Yeah. So I grew up in uh, Malaysia, a country uh, north of Singapore. Uh, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do as far as education. And I knew U.S. was one of the options I had to come to the U.S. and and get my undergrad degree. Uh, Frankly, I put my love of chemistry and wanting to be the first female engineer in my family together and said chemical engineering. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But when I got to Iowa, I learned quickly when my mom said, I think you need to go get a job to start paying your bills. 
I thought to myself, you know, I'd learned a lot about research. I had an uncle who was doing research as when I was a kid, learned a lot of it from him. So I said, I'm going to go get a job in research. And so that's where I started in epigenetics. And that was about 15 years ago when epigenetics was barely known. Everyone was still doing a lot of work in genetics uh, before there was a way for us to measure epigenetics at scale. Um, so got to really understand the science behind epigenetics, truly the value that we're able to derive from it. Went on to get my master's, again, did a lot of work in epigenetics. But at that time, we started to have the ability to measure epigenetics in scale and pivoted a little more to the machine learning and AI world to now make sense of all the data that we had. And then I went on and did my PhD in biomedical engineering. Essentially, my project for my PhD was bridging genetics epigenetics, specifically DNA methylation and artificial intelligence. And little did I know that it would work so well that we would end up patenting the work and spinning off cardiodiagnostics in 2017. Got it. That's that's an awesome, that's an awesome overview. And so for people that are hearing the word epigenetics for the first mm-hmm. time, right? We had a we had a short conversation before we hit the record button about how this this topic is is arguably maybe more well understood within the biohacking, uh, yes. you know, com- community and amongst uh, longevity enthusiasts. But for those that haven't have never heard of this or, or loosely mm-hmm. familiar with it, can you give us like a sort of a high level overview of epigenetics in general before we kind of dig into kind of the the the, the core product that you're working on at Cardio Diagnostics? Yeah. So I think one of the best way to understand epigenetics is to contrast it to genetics, right? Because we've all heard of genetics. We have all at this point, 23andMe is a household name. We've, we've come across it, but I think there are a few key elements worth highlighting. The first is we're all born with our genetics. It doesn't change throughout our lifetime, essentially. And genetics, when we're thinking about complex diseases, only accounts for for heart disease, for instance, only 20% of our risk for heart disease. So one, we're born with it. Two, we can't change it. Three, it's important, but not sufficient. Hmm. And one way to think about genetics is sort of a DNA hardware, right? Because it's there, it's what you inherited. Now, when we contrast that to epigenetics, I contrasted and said epigenetics is a DNA software. So it's a software that's affected by our lifestyle and environment. So what we do in our day-to-day lives, it turns around and affects the cellular function, how our cells react and adapt. And one of the ways is by turning genes on and off through something called DNA methylation, which is an epigenetic biomarker. So if we're thinking of genetics as DNA hardware that we can't change, I would think of epigenetics as DNA software that is dynamic, meaning when we change our lifestyle, when we change our habits, it does influence our DNA methylation, our epigenetics. So it brings about the ability to not just understand what we're doing that's good or bad, but also what's influencing our risk for disease, but at the same time, what we can change. And I think that is very important and it truly contributes to the larger aspect of risk for complex diseases like heart disease. Yeah, that's a that's a great overview. Thanks, th- thanks for that. And and th- this uh, this topic of epigenetics, hmm. it still feels very very new, um, yeah. right? And I think that's probably a safe a safe way to describe it. Right now, um, within the U.S. or maybe even globally, are there hmm. are there certain kind of um, sort of pockets where you know this is being researched more heavily? Right? You went to the University of Iowa, go Hawks, yes. right? Uh, <laughs> um, but you know, is is you know, is Iowa City? Is it one of those pockets, or are there others kind of throughout throughout the U.S. or even globally that kind of have a better understanding of this this uh, 
this landscape in general? Yeah, I would say it's definitely pockets, like Mm -hmm. especially when I started in epigenetics some 15 years ago. I mean, barely anyone, even at University of Iowa, no one, no one else is doing epigenetics, Mm -hmm. right? It was really new. Mostly we've seen the field of epigenetics grow and people understand it in cancer predominantly when Mm -hmm. we're thinking about like, how are we understanding epigenetics relative to disease? And to your point in the biohacking community, thinking about longevity, how can we reverse some of the aging that's happening from what we're doing our day-to-day lives? So I think the pocket is no longer as isolated as it was some, you know, 10, 15 years ago, and more people are understanding it because we're frankly exhausted being able to leverage and understand genetics, even from a perspective of things like drug development. So now knowing that we're able to leverage epigenetics, we're able to understand it well, measure it at scale, know what's happening when we change our behavior. I think those aspects are becoming highly valuable when we're thinking about how do we advance healthcare. Right, right. And and, and for those listening, um, this topic of epi- epigenetics, like watch out for it. I mean, I, I personally think it's going to be a super, super hot space uh, move, moving forward. I actually first um, heard about it uh, through my involvement with uh, with Juve um, and mm-hmm. kind of the engagement that we had across kind of the you know with health and medical influencers in the longevity space. So people yeah. like you know Ben Greenfield, Dr. Mark Hyman at the at the Cleveland Clinic, like mm-hmm. a lot of these folks I know have been ha- have been you know I think talking about it for the better part of you know five plus years now. And obviously, Misha, yeah. you've been you've been involved a lot longer than that, right? 15, <laughs> 15 years. So this should be a, a fun conversation and interested in learning a little bit more about what you're building. As well yeah. as kind of what you've learned, you know, uh, since uh, uh, since starting the company uh, back in 2017. So um, let's start with kind of the, your your current product, which is the mm-hmm. is it the Epi, Epigen CHD test? Is that how you Epi Plus Gen CHD? Yeah, Epi Plus Gen CHD test. Without getting like too deep, give us like an overview of kind of what what the product is and kind of you know how how it's used, and then we'll kind of yeah. go back in time a little bit. So EpiPlusGen CHD is focused on primary prevention of heart disease. So it's a clinical test, meaning it needs to be prescribed by a clinician. Now, when we think about heart disease today, one of the areas we sort of lack is the visibility, good visibility when making clinical decisions, meaning we still have blind spots with the tools that we use today in understanding who amongst us are at risk of having a heart attack, which is essentially what coronary heart disease leads to. It's the major cause of heart attacks. And so what EpiPlusGen CHD does is it more sensitively points out to providers which of their patients are likely to have a heart attack in the next three years. Hmm. And the underlying technology of it is what we essentially talked about, epigenetics. We do couple it with genetics as well, and we couple it to artificial intelligence. Got it. Got it. Okay. And so and this, this is a this is can can help us walk us through sort of like the, the the patient pathway. So as an example, say I'm with my primary care physician, and um, you know, getting a blood pressure reading is pretty normal, right? It's been uh, sort of standard standard protocol. Let's say I have elevated blood pressure as an example. Yeah. Is this something that then the physician would prescribe? And and how much more accurate or like what is this? What kind of picture does this paint uh, to me as a, as a you know as, as a patient in terms of you know helping to prevent uh, you know a future heart attack? Yeah. So the the good news is uh, we've the test is presented in a way where we've made it more accessible. What I mean by that is there's an opportunity to go into your healthcare provider and get the test prescribed and get your blood drawn. At the end of the day, it is a blood test. 
The other option is whether you go through telemedicine with your provider or our own provider that we have uh, integrated with, you can do an at-home Lancet kit to collect your blood at home. So 100% remote to get tested. You don't have to leave your home. Now, to your point, who's eligible for this test? It's a primary prevention test. So the American Heart Association says, once you hit 20 years old, you should start thinking about preventing heart disease, right? It is the number one killer for both men and women. So regardless of risk factors, but especially if you have risk factors, whether it's blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, family history, you start getting tested. So this test would be something your provider would prescribe. You have to be at least 35 years old, not diagnosed with coronary heart disease. There are eligibility criteria for the test. But once the blood is drawn, it's sent to the lab and it's profile and you get the provider gets the results to talk to you about it. Now, one of the things that was pretty eye-opening when we were working on this technology, and frankly, I mean, my co-founder is an MD by training. He's an MD, MD, PhD by training. And he was surprised. And so was I. What we found was that, uh, and we did the study with Intermountain Healthcare, peer-reviewed, published. On average, if you're looking at current risk calculator for cardiovascular disease, which use traditional risk factors that we just talked about, lipids, blood pressure, so on. For every 100 men who are likely to have a heart attack within three years, on average, we're identifying 44 of them correctly. And for women, 32 out of 100 on average. If we're looking at the EpiPlus Gen CHD test, we're identifying 78 out of 100 women correctly and 76 out of 100 men correctly, meaning a 2.4 times sensitivity increase for women and 1.7 times for men, which To me, first and foremost, the part that we have to address is we're making clinical decisions based on the tools that we're deploying. And if those tools are giving us not so great information, we're relying on not so great information to make clinical decisions. Got it. Well, that's really impressive. Um, The fact that you're sort of like, at least in in summary, sort of 2Xing the accuracy Mm -hmm. of of whether a patient, male or female, is going to be subject to a... uh, a potential, uh, you know, heart condition within a relatively short amount of time, right? Three years. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty near term window. So that's, that's really cool. So in terms of kind of where the company's at, and again, we'll kind of go back in time here over the next, you know, 20 minutes or so, but where the company's at today, you're actively commercializing this, correct? This, this test? Uh, This test is already on the market. So this is already being used by providers today. Okay. Okay. Very, very cool. And, and if I'm, so in most of our audience, right, is in the med tech or health tech space. And they're like, you know, obviously more business inclined. But I think for the most part, we're all, you know, we're all sort of interested in in healthcare in general, right? So like I can go, what what's the best place to to like, you know, get access to this technology if my provider is unaware? Just go to the website, cardiodiagnostics and, and kind yep. of cardiodiagnosticsinc.com and there's a link to the telemedicine provider elicity.com there's also an opportunity to request the test or a requisition form if you want your own provider to order order the test okay okay cool and uh so if you're listening and don't make it to the show notes for this interview which which will include you know a, a long form summary of the uh of kind of the, the key insights from, from Misha, but it's cardiodiagnosticsinc.com. So cardiodiagnosticsinc.com is, is the website. And of course, we'll link to it uh, in the in the summary for this particular interview on, on medsider.com. So I think that that helps set the stage for kind of the next segment of this uh, this conversation, which is really kind of, uh, you know, rooted in in what you've learned, right, since uh, yeah. since starting the company back in back in 2017. So let's start kind of with the earliest versions of the, of the technology, uh, you know, your alpha and beta versions. When you think about 
those, right? Mm -hmm. um, and kind of it, that that iterative, that very iterative process versus what you know you're commercializing now. You know, what are what are some of the key lessons that you've learned? You know, develop you know through that development process. Yeah, I think for us, where we started was very important, and that was with the science. Right. A lot of times there's in my mind, there are somewhat two ways. It's not always the same, but there are two ways to go about it. One, we're looking at a need and we're kind of working backwards to find a solution. The second is, you know, something is so compelling, you're mm. turning it to meet a huge unmet need. So for us, it was that way. Right. Like when I think about the early days of cardio it was rooted very heavily on the science and the technology. And then I would say the next iteration of that was to say, this works just too well. <laughs> like, is this really what it is, right? And I think that is something that we're all afraid as we're building companies to ask, because what if it's not? And so in our case, I think we did that next step right in working with Intermount Healthcare to say, let's go validate it externally to make sure that it's showing us what we saw in the proof of concept. And then I would say the next iteration of the company was to say, how do we now take something that works so well on the uh, bench and turn it into something that works, you know, in the commercial real world? So translating that into, you know, building commercial partnerships, building those steps, being able to go out and talk about it, educating physicians. Those, I would say, are some iterative steps that we took getting from the science all the way to what providers use today. Got it. Got it. I, uh, that, that, um, the kind of the, the, your, your first answer around kind of framing up the approach that most of us have kind of in the, mm -hmm. you know, that are working on, on a, on a life science startup is most of us are inclined to like, you know, look for the, the big need, right. Or the big challenge that we're trying to solve for and then reverse engineer a solution to your point. But I really like that. It doesn't always have to be that way. Right. I mean, you oh. you obviously saw something super compelling from a scientific standpoint, a, a really a true breakthrough. And we're like, this is too, like we'll figure out like how to like yeah. the, the pains, right. That this is going to solve, but this is like too yeah. compelling of a technology not to work on. And it reminds me of like, you know, the way Elon, like Elon Musk approaches, mm -hmm. like his approach, like SpaceX and Tesla is like, there wasn't necessarily like, look at, look at SpaceX as an example, right? Like mm -hmm. he was going to get like, go down that path, but as, as like a byproduct, there's a business model around uh, Starlink, right. As an yeah. example, right. It's like, I'm going to do this. This needs to be done. It's too compelling not to work on. And we'll figure out like the business model, like a little bit mm -hmm. later. And it mm -hmm. kind of reminds me of that. It doesn't, we don't always have to focus on, you know, on this, this existing, you know, pain, not that, that not that you shouldn't, but if you're, if you're on the kind of the, the verge of a, of a compelling, you know, scientific kind of breakthrough technology, right? I mean, it would have been a crime for us not to take something after the data being so compelling over and over again, to not translate it to, frankly, two things that come together that's very synergistic. One, being able to improve patient lives and improve quality of life for all of us in general. And two, as a company, in, increase shareholder value. I think mm -hmm. those things can happen simultaneously. Um, but for us, it's part of our core principle that we never wanted to put something out that didn't first and foremost, we could stand behind from a scientific clinical technology perspective. Got it. Got it. And that the, the second part of your, of your answer, as it relates to kind of, you know, um, sort of validating this, this technology on the bench, right. And it, it, it seems like a, an extremely smart play to right partner with a, a well-known organization, Intermountain Healthcare to sort of val validate it in the real world. But when you think about kind of that, that those translation, those translational efforts, right. Taking something that appears to be working extremely well, but it's not maybe, not maybe uh, far enough along, right. To commercialize yet. 
like th- working through that process, you know, were there some key kind of big, big wins along the way, or maybe some, some, uh, you know, some things that you, you, you tripped over, uh, and, you know, learned, learned a lot from to walk us through that, that process of kind of that, that work kind of getting it ready for, for eventual commercialization. I would say one of the key challenges we ran into very early on is trying to find the right kind of partner who has exactly what you need. And that's not always easy to come by, right? Like, especially if you think in our case, we were looking at three-year risk for coronary heart disease. So we needed people with a biobank of samples that we can use to go out and profile the molecular markers, but also follow these people for at least three years. Hmm. And that's something really specific, right? Got it. And so the initial challenge we ran into was we had to call up people in our network and be like, hey, do you know anyone who has kind of around this? this realm of things that we need. And I think not taking any shortcuts in finding that partner, again, a reliable partner, a well-known partner, someone who is truly in it, again, for their patients, for the science, I think that was very critical. The second thing is always everything in healthcare is so expensive. Building a life science company, medtech, healthcare, anything in our area that we do, it's always very expensive. So thinking through what are some ways we can either, you know, allocate funds. Is there a way for us to get more interns involved when it comes to areas, of course, not the core area where you're like developing the product, but just being creative in the process, in the use of funds, Because I think a lot of people would resonate with the whole circular problem we face in building deep tech, life science, healthcare companies in that you need to show results to get money, but you need money to show results, right? So so for us, I would say those were some key challenges is making sure that the resources we had were allocated appropriately. And the second thing is finding the right kind of partners and we actually launched EpiPlus Gen CHD tests with less than half a million dollars. Wow, that's that's impressive. So you were definitely able to kind of be be creative and efficient, right? With uh, yeah. with, with 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 on a with, with that sort of budget. Yeah, that's that's impressive. Uh, regardless of kind of the the the, the vertical that you're working in, right? Um, mm-hmm. Especially especially kind of life science. But you you raise a good point. I mean, it's one of the it's one of the reasons I always um, sort of have, have a different level of respect for for people who are building companies in, you know, whether it's device or biotech or whatever. It's like you're not only dealing with significant regulatory, you know, challenges oh, and typically yeah. like very high development or technical, uh, you know, uh, hurdles to cross. But it's always I mean, it's, it's so expensive. Right. So you've always yeah. got to do more with less always, you know, versus always. maybe you know, something else in, 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 you know, traditional software tech or something like that. So then that, that, that I don't mean that to demean, you know, other other kind of, uh, you know, categories or whatnot, but like building in, in med tech, biotech, except life, the life sciences in general is just, it's hard. It's hard. It, uh, it is. It is. I yeah. mean, all the pieces have to come together to your point, you know, all the studies that you have to do, all the regulatory aspects, um, the, the right types of commercial partners and the cash. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of that has to, it, all of that has to come together to be able to, you know, get remotely close to bringing a product to market. Got it. Got it. And, um, I, your point about finding the right partners. I mean, that, that, that's something I can't like just in, even my, in my own personal experience, um, yeah. that's so crucial. And I just think, um, if you're working on a startup in an early stage, you know, expect to go wide, right. Almost, it's almost like kind of like dialing for dollars to a certain extent where it's like, you're, you're going wide in your networks, you know, um, yeah. you know, just to eventually hopefully narrow in on a few, a few key partners that maybe have 
are, are a good, are a good fit. But like, you know, if you have the expectation that you're going to find that, that partner with, you know, within, you know, after one or two conversations, that's usually not going <laughs> to usually not realistic, you know, um, especially, especially now, you know, uh, with kind of the, the, the larger kind of, uh, sort of macroeconomic conditions in general, it's just harder, you know, supply chain challenges, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, you know, so. I would say options are never a bad thing. Mm-hmm right? Like you might get a better data set than you thought. You might get a better price point than you thought. You might get a more well-known name than you thought. It's always nice to shop around and have those options, but also at some point there's diminishing returns. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a fine balance. Got it. Got it. I want to, I want to circle back around to a comment you made earlier uh, about education, right? Educating the broader community about what epigenetics is, the importance of it, why they should maybe use uh, a test like the Epi Plus Gen um, CHD diagnostic, but just to make sure, um, just to kind of close the loop on kind of this this kind of early stage development work. What does the regulatory path work for uh, for a test like this? Is it a, is it a is it a class two uh, you know device? Then is that is that what you're looking at? Actually, it's a, a laboratory developed test, so an LDT. Okay. So it doesn't require at this stage FDA pre market authorization. It's more so in the realm of CLIA regulations. So being able to go through and do the analytical validity testing, uh, in our case, doing the clinical validation. So it requires rigorous studies, but it's under the purview of CLIA more than it is the FDA. Got it. Got it. Okay. And so with a with a diagnostic test like this, mm-hmm. is it almost um, like is, is clinical data almost always required then as part of that 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 pathway or that process? How do I put this? Not everyone goes through the process of getting rigorous clinical data, but is that something everyone should be doing? Absolutely. Got right? it. Okay. Like for us, that was non-negotiable. I mean, people point to us all the times of, you know, some other tests that may not be as rigorously validated. People ask us all the time, hey, is yours rigorously validated, right? Because there isn't really a A, B, C, D. It's not like a pharmaceutical where it's phase one, phase two, phase three, or anything like that. So that's not always the case, but it should be. Got it. Got it. So that's, that's almost like, it sounds like it was a, it was an intentional choice, right. By, by your team to run those, those powered clinical studies to help validate the the technology. Yes. And and for us, you know, um, being an LDT is a start going through the FDA pathway is something that we may choose to do over time. Um, just again, to go through and have sort of the FDA seal, if you will, and other things that come with going through the FDA pathway. But one of the key things being able to launch as an LDT is to get market feedback, mm. to go out in the market, start educating people, tweaking the way we present the data, the results, the report, and then sort of, you know, keeping it in an optimal position before we, let's say, decide to go through the FDA process. Got so. It. Starting off there, but I can't say that that would be kind of the final destination. Got it. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, let's talk a little bit more about kind of this, this educational process, right? Because we we already touched on this idea that epigenetics is is this new kind of like sexy space, um, yeah. for lack of a better description, but there's still like kind of a general lack of awareness. And even for those that have heard of it, they don't really understand how it works. And it's kind of complex, right? Um or it can be kind of complex when you start to kind of peel back the layers of the onion. So walk us through kind of, you know, your approach at cardiodiagnostics, considering this is a test that is prescribed, you know, yeah. uh, by, by primary uh, care physicians. But at the same time, you know, a consumer like myself could go straight to your website and, you know, connect through through telemedicine. So walk us through kind of that that approach. And are there a few maybe 
key things, like one or two key things that have worked have worked well uh, for you kind of in these in these early days of, of commercialization. Hey there, it's Scott, and thanks for listening in so far. The rest of this conversation is only available via our private podcast for MedSider Premium members. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. You'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, Nadeem Yared, CEO of CVRX, and so many others. As a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medical device and health technology entrepreneurs. In addition, you'll get a copy of every volume of MedSider Mentors at no additional cost. To learn more, head over to medsiderradio.com forward slash premium. Again, that's medsiderradio.com forward slash premium.